Hello, and welcome to The Complete Elaine May. This is season two, episode one. Uh, pretty exciting, Travis. Are you excited? I'm super excited. I'm excited to uh, move on from uh, Kubrick and turn That's over who it was. I was trying leaf. to remember. I was trying to remember who the the person was that we did last time but i know it's been so long it's been I so just long i forgot it put it completely out of my mind you know um, once something's complete you can just kind of file it away forever <laughs> exactly i'm never going to watch a kubrick movie ever again no we're done it's over yeah. um so yeah so we're here uh with a brand new director and uh this is going to be a shorter season than the previous season and typically, uh, that means uh, one of two things, both of which are usually uh, unfortunate. <laughs> In some shorter seasons, are going to happen because the director unfortunately passes away early in their career. Um, there may be some seasons where uh, a director, uh, someone like Victor Arise, um, didn't make very many movies uh, because they work. He worked slowly. Um, although I think his career is similar to Elaine May's in terms of the the kind of tragedy of it, which is that um, it was very difficult for her to get movies made, and eventually she just sort of gave up because she was tired of being hassled about it. <laughs> uh, so this is not. Uh, it's there's going to be. Uh, some rocky moments in the in this season it's not like kubrick where he was sort of given carte blanche to do whatever he wanted because he was a genius and the movie studio was happy to bend over backwards for him in fact in in this uh season it's going to be quite the opposite which is something i'm sure we will uh we will talk about a lot uh, as we get into these movies yeah i'm excited that we picked uh elaine may uh one for as much as sad it is the brevity of her career is kind of nice and refreshing to know we don't have 15 movies staring down the pipe at us uh you know right and, and then as fans of the show know then that would mean that you know three years later we'd be complete with that director <laughs> right. so it'll it'll be nice and you know and her uh we're moving more towards a uh she has more of a comedic bend in all of her work uh but just as dark as our uh, as the predecessor uh, episode, so it's true. Um, it should be uh, should be interesting to compare and contrast a little bit, and also just kind of uh, see how she uh, grew and changed throughout the career before it was uh, cut short, just due to uh, yeah. We'll get into that. Yes, we'll, we'll we will. That we will. Yeah, and um, uh, just so the listeners know. Um, because this is a shorter season, we're going to just be, it's just going to be me and Travis on this ride. Um, we will just be doing a longer, yes, we can make it if we try. Uh, it's going to be, we'll, we'll be doing a longer uh, season uh, next with, with, and we'll have guests along the way for that. Um, but we wanted to, uh, to really um, spend some alone time uh, talking about Elaine May today. And the, the other thing uh, I want to point out here is that um, we're only on season two, and we're already breaking one of our rules, which is uh, that Elaine May is still alive and well. Uh, she <laughs> and is indeed. She, there is a distant possibility, however distant uh, and however seemingly impossible it would seem, that she could make another movie, and then we would 
um, be uh, happily not complete uh, in this uh, in this season. She's currently working on Broadway um, and has been has acted uh, recently in the um, terrible, awful, no good, very bad Woody Allen Amazon series. Um, where it was nice to see her, and that was about it <laughs> for that for that yeah. series. Yeah, I mean, that's basically the trajectory of her career, right? Directed some movies, and then has been in Woody Allen movies. Yeah, yeah, she's certainly done some, in the she's 2000s. Done a lot of, yeah, and she's done, a, I mean, I, th- I think she's done a lot of writing. I still think she's known as a pretty uh, reliable script doctor. Um, yes. But, uh, yeah, it's a... Uh, It'll be interesting. I'm happy to. Uh, I'm happy we're going to be talking about her. So, I mean, before we get into this this first movie, which is uh, a new leaf, um, I did want to talk a little bit about her career and her reputation. Um, and I think the first place that you have to go here uh, is the fact that she is a woman. And she worked in Hollywood at a time, uh, she certainly started in Hollywood at a time when there were uh, virtually no female directors uh, making feature films. Um, And the degree to which that is true is actually pretty staggering. Do you... uh, Yeah. Do you... um, Have you looked at the, the stats for this? I haven't looked at the stats, but just based off of my knowledge and reading books like uh, uh, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, and kind of doing like a summation of like late 60s, early 70s cinema, uh, yeah, she she is a rarity uh, in the midst of all that uh, masculine New Hollywood that was happening around that time. Well, unfortunately, it's not just New Hollywood. Um, So in the late 70s, uh, the DGA, um, six uh, female directors got together and pressured the DGA, and they did a study of of Hollywood, basically um, network TV shows and feature films, basically looking at um, female representation in the director's chair. Um, They're between um, the uh, basically post-war, like 1945, and the time when their study came out uh, around 1980, uh, there were 7,332 movies, feature films made by the major studios. So that doesn't include independent productions of any kind. Um, and that's just in the US, obviously. How many, Travis, do you think out of 7,332 were directed by women? One. 14. Oh, see, I went way under. Price is right <laughs> rules. I win. 14. 14. Yeah. So, basically, <laughs> we have what is a that? whole... That's like Barbara Loden and... Uh, so that was independent. Yeah. Oh, okay. Ida Lupino, also uh, independent. Yeah. Um, it was virtually impossible um, for women to direct movies at this point. Um, and the, they actually took... The DGA actually took the studios to court 
in the early 80s about it um, and it was thrown out on a on a terrible technicality um, but the but the the process of doing that did eventually result in the 80s in some uh, breakthroughs for female directors um, working in Hollywood and then we took a step back again and it's been sort of stop and start ever since with uh, with the last 10 to 15 years being um, much more uh, successful relatively speaking but there's there's pretty much nowhere to go but up from uh, two-tenths of one percent of all movies uh, being directed by women and so you know when, when we are looking at our um, uh, options for female filmmakers for this show um, that there really aren't very many, especially if you only are looking in the U.S. If you go foreign, there's there's some more uh, there's more, um, but even people you know even people outside the U.S. like Varda. I mean Ackerman obviously passed only recently, um, and in, not of natural causes, so she could uh, you know still be living. There's very few uh, female directors who have had long, full lives and past, um, with, you know, their careers behind them because women simply weren't making a lot of movies, uh, previous to the last 15 to 20 years. And those filmmakers are still in the middle of their careers. And, you know, there's still decades of work ahead of them. People like Claire Denis and, um, Andrea Arnold and Lynn Ramsey, um, especially, uh, you know, those those directors have all had struggles in their careers to get movies made, especially Ramsey. Um, Jane Jane Campion is another good example of that. Um, that and that's so crazy too. There's very few that you can look back at. Yeah, yeah, and that and that's crazy too. Besides besides the lack of ability of finding uh, female directors that have continued and had a storied career, um, even those ones that we do know of. Uh, access to their complete works is so hard to come by. I mean, there's still like Claire yeah. Denis we talked about. There's very few of her movies that we can get here in the United States. You have to get Region B or you know uh, Region Free Player and try to get stuff. And even there, sometimes it's hard to find. So, and it's and it's crazy because you think of Jane uh, Jane Campion and you know there's Oscars Oscars attached to her name and it just, you know, her, her career just uh, fizzled out due to the, the lack of uh, viable projects or projects that she probably put forward that uh, studio heads were saying, yeah, no one's really into that. And I have to assume that, and I make the assumption that a lot of the rise of female filmmakers right now um, is in part due to finally having a spotlight sh- shown on talented uh, female directors that deserve every chance that any other male director deserves. But also, I think, due to the change of the way Hollywood is working right now, where it's either they make giant tentpole action extravaganzas, right, or, you know, nothing. Micro-budget, like, <laughs> yeah. My, and then they make micro-budgets. They don't feel like they're taking a risk on female directors now if you look at it financially which is stupid also because they took risks after risk after risk with male directors and just keep throwing money at them even if they do flop after flop after flop 
um, yet with female directors, one flop and you're just cast off to the to the uh, to the to the yep. you know dustbin, and you're just an IMDb footnote, which is completely ridiculous. And so, yeah, like we when we were talking about trying to find a, a you know a good entry point into female directing, um, you know, we could either go way back, and it's hard to find access to a lot of uh, the older uh, silent films and stuff like that, or even all of Ida Lupino's films, and then you know so. It's a, uh, it's absolutely ridiculous that this is the type of, uh, you know, challenge that we face trying to uh, find uh, female directors to be able to talk about on this show. But I'm glad we did. Yeah, and and I mean the other thing we should point out is that um, Elaine May is uh, very much deserving of this slot uh, by her own rights. Uh, she has a very interesting career with very interesting movies. The one we're talking about today, I think, is especially uh, great. And I think the renewed interest in her films uh, in recent times uh, is tied in some ways to people looking for the tradition of female filmmakers in the U.S. and um, you know, trying to find what they can, but I think it's part of a larger, uh, a renewed appreciation for this kind of literate, um, intellectual, but wacky humor that, um, is kind of lost in today's films. And I think she was doing something really fresh that, uh, still holds up today and um, you know I wish that there was more of out there uh, and hopefully uh, th- things like this film being released uh, in a nice nice edition will get more people influenced by it get more people influenced by May in general and start making those kinds of movies because there's a lot of potential to be mined there for uh, interesting comedy that we're not really seeing right now because we're still in sort of the doldrums of the R-rated gross-out comedy uh, phase. Yeah, I agree. I think, uh, and I think most of those intelligent types of comedies are going towards, uh, you know, limited series on Netflix or Amazon and stuff like that. Nothing is being released in the theaters in terms of that, uh, that type of, uh, of uh, comedy that we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, and and Elaine May wasn't just, uh, you know, one of the only women doing this at the time. She was directly um, referred to throughout even um, the process of um, the DGA lawsuit um, in the late 70s, early 80s, because she was one of the few directors that both sides could point to as... um, indicative of what can be accomplished because she had a um, notorious career for uh, not uh, doing what the studios wanted her to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, um, I think, was taken as a badge of honor by some people, but it was used very much as a point of uh, sexism by people who would say, well, uh, I actually have a quote here uh, from from a, um, a New York Times article that was discussing the, um, the 
issue of women directors uh i found it while i was looking around for those statistics that i had um i had remembered reading it's a really interesting article and i'll um try to remember to include it in the notes to this uh, episode but um this is this is a quote from uh, a guy named harry uffland who uh was supposedly um one of the um most successful agents of the time uh and He said, it's easy to blame male chauvinism, but it's quite simply that no woman except Elaine May has ever made a good movie, and her last one, Mikey and Nikki, never got finished. Everyone knows how brilliant she is, but no one will trust her with a film. The rest of the women's stuff I've seen is just awful. So that was a top uh, Hollywood agent speaking to the New York Times on record so you see the the kind of issues that that and the kind of of just sort of um institutionalized sexism that these filmmakers were up against at the time and it, they go on in the article to uh interview some of Elaine May's friends and it what really does seem like it was a situation where sure there were definitely um there were definitely fewer chances for her to come back and try to make another movie but I think she had just had enough of it and didn't want to deal with the hassle of it anymore. And so I think she was much more um, interested in being in the background. And um, the only reason she made the fourth movie was was uh, Warren Beatty kind of pushed her into it, which is something that uh, we'll get to further down the road. But um, I think unless there's anything else uh, set up wise, you wanted to... Uh, uh, talk no, about I mean, with her. I guess, uh, I guess the only thing I would talk, like, maybe kind of throw in with that, uh, that quote that you found, would just be about uh, the fact that, uh, you know, her first movie, this one we're about to talk about, a new leaf, uh, she had uh, final cut on, mm-hmm. which is rare, um, and at that time, as all those, like I said, I, I lump her into this this time period of the, uh, you know, new new Hollywood. Because, you know, this movie was made during that time period. And at that time, a lot of these directors were insisting on Final Cut because that was part of their, uh, you know, wrestling away creative control from the studios and putting their auteur stamp on it. And Elaine May uh, managed to also get Final Cut on her film and the studio just completely, uh, you know, ignored it and took it away from her after she, you know... Uh, submitted the first uh, three-hour cut of the film and they just kind of said oh no she's breaking all her uh, promises we're taking the film away from her and we're going to recut it and it went into court and there was lawsuits and uh, the judge sided with uh, the studio agreeing that uh, the film wasn't harmed at all by their interfering with what yeah she supposedly wanted to do. supposedly the judge watched the movie and said and liked it yeah, and so that her, was why it got thrown out of court. Which yeah, is her, crazy. Her lawsuit, yeah, I know her lawsuit. Uh, the the grounds in which she was placing her lawsuit on was that they're going to damage the film and it'll lose all artistic merit and uh, you know this you know enjoyment of that film will be lost because of their tinkering. And the judge watched said, "No, I thought it was fine. I, I don't think you need more than what you have." That's just ridiculous. <laughs> like it's, a, I mean, judge as movie critic is pretty bizarre, and you know, regardless of whether the movie is good or not, and it's great. 
um, she is the filmmaker and she had final cut in her contract. How do you, how do you ignore that? It's, yeah. it's bizarre to me. Um, and... we'll get, but we'll get more into that. Um, as we go, I, the one other thing I remembered before we went, we dive into the movie is, um, we should talk about her career before this, which was, yes. um, her comedy career. Yeah. Um, part of the comedy duo Nichols and May. Yes. And so she, uh, has made a, a pretty substantial impact on film comedy, but, um, and, and Mike Nichols obviously made, made a pretty substantial impact on film as well. Um, but I don't think either one of them had as much of an influence as a filmmaker as they did together as a comedian. It's hard to overstate their importance to modern comedy. And so, I, I mean, I think, that just to get that out of the way like the you know it didn't define the rest of her career or his career and they they did end up working together again um in mostly in the 90s uh she -hmm. wrote many of his co-wrote many of his movies um but their their uh sort of what was known at the time as intellectual comedy um their improv it was mostly improvised um a lot about um relationships uh, which was actually a word that didn't exist until around that time um and it was just very um urban and um and waspy waspy (laughs) yes but in like the kooky like parody waspy way yeah Um, i think they were called uh oh what was their they had a whole there was a whole uh line about their type of comedy and it was uh they were you know they were doing whole comedy bits on doctors and professionals and relationships between mothers and sons. And so it was all coming from kind of like a little bit of a psychological bend and, uh, you know, uh, people who were in psychoanalysis uh, at that time. And so she they're lumped in together with uh, like early Woody Allen stand up comedy yeah. and Bob Newhart and. Uh, so uh yeah i i did you listen to you listen to a couple of their albums right kind of just as prep i did too yeah it was it's it's super fun you know there's some great great bits they were doing some great uh free association they do with uh in terms of uh how people communicate with each other and uh yeah i i enjoyed it and i can see how they could uh uh, parlayed that kind of comedy into something else but i'm surprised that the first thing that they did wasn't together. Usually you would think a comedy team like that would go on to be into something together right away. But, you know, after three albums, they kind of went their separate ways. And uh, Mike Nichols went to start directing uh, Broadway Broadway plays or went to plays. And uh, she did playwright. And I think they worked on something together early. But then he went on to do directing, and then I think she kind of followed suit soon after, after being uh, recognized as a good screenwriter. Yeah, I don't think that they um, broke up in the way that, you know, Oh yeah. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel broke up or something, where no, it was like it was completely, a... we're not going to talk for years kind of thing. It was yeah, very no. much like a, we've done this now. Yeah, an amicable, let's move on to yeah. the next steps in our life, not uh, beat this to death kind of thing. Right, right. And she she did appear in a couple of movies before uh, this movie, um, and actually uh, wrote a movie uh, under a pseudonym uh, the same year that this was released. Uh, it came out for Otto Preminger, um, 
which I have not seen. I forget. I don't have the name in front of me, but um, it it is available to rent on uh, on like uh, iTunes and stuff like that. Um, nice. So uh, I, I don't think it's supposed to be especially good. Um, and I I find her the things that she wrote, um, which is another thing we should point out here actually, because she has made movies that she did not direct herself but we are sticking to the just the directed movies here yes um yeah she's had some she has worked in many things yeah she's not... had her hand in quite a few things and 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 actually i think uh one of the movies that she appeared in um in i think like 90 called in the spirit there have been rumors that she basically directed the movie as well um uh and um so I mean, you know, you can say what what you will about that, but um, we're the sticking to the four. one was called uh, "Such Good Friends." Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, and she she did not initially want to direct this movie, um, and she has said that that she wanted choice on who the director could be, and they wouldn't give her the choice, but they would let her direct it herself if she wanted to. Isn't that isn't that crazy? It's pretty crazy. I mean, especially when you think about those statistics, like that they decided, you know, to to take a chance on her, um, rather than have her choose somebody. I mean, I don't know if she floated names and they turned them down initially or what it was, but. yeah it's it's a it's a it's a crazy agreement um we should also point out sorry i keep pointing things out but um similar to kubrick she seems to be a bit of a liar when it comes to pretty much everything about her like i mean it says in wikipedia she was born in philadelphia she was married when she was like 16 and like she actually she has a daughter who's you know 60 in her mid to late 60s now um she's she's 86 now i think um and uh but then apparently like she was talking to jonathan rosenbaum and she was like oh yeah that's none of that's true i i was born in chicago like she's just i guess she just like makes up her whole like life for (laughs) people (laughs) <laughs> it's like, I don't know. Well, I know that uh, one of her, uh, I think on the uh, back of her first album where they put the uh, kind of like who these people are kind of things, you know, uh, Mike Nichols had a whole like yeah. born here and done this and all Elaine May said was Elaine May does not exist. Yeah. And that was it. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty great. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, she's she's definitely not somebody who talk, talks a lot about her work, um, you know, and, and that's probably wrapped up a lot in the, the hassle that she had to uh, deal with throughout it. Um, it's probably not a pleasant thing for her to discuss. She still doesn't really like this movie, even though it's uh, very highly regarded and was even well received at the time that it was released. Um, and so I think it, the combination of her being normally and naturally from her previous life, uh, a private person combined with that experience has made it very rare that she talks openly about the films that she made it's a it's a interesting and i can understand she's probably very uh very upset with the amount of tinkering that was done to that her first film so it probably left a bad taste in her mouth for sure moving forward yeah in, her, in the rest of her career you know 
So right, should, let's let's talk. talk yeah, it? let's do it. Let's do this. What what do you what do you think of this movie? Um, this is a new leaf. It's um, Walter Matthau uh, and Elaine May are the the two leads. It's really Walter yeah. Matthau's movie. He he's yeah. in every scene, virtually, he's playing almost like a. Uh, he's almost playing like a W. C. Fields type character in this film. Like the way his uh, delivery of all of his uh, lines are. It's, yeah. Uh, Except instead of a little kid constantly bothering him, it's Elaine May bothering him. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's about a it's about a rich affluent uh, person who does nothing. Uh, played by named uh, named Harry Henry, played by uh, Walter Matthau, and then he's told that he has no money. He is officially broke, and he has two choices, and that's to either kill himself or marry into more money. And so he sets out uh, because he is a coward. <laughs> he sets out instead to uh, try to find a uh, wife. Um, but because he's uh, used to the lifestyle he leads, which is that of just uh, being on his own and doing things he likes and enjoying the good life, uh, his plan is to find a wife that uh, he can uh, marry, then kill and just take her money and continue leading exactly the lifestyle he had before. Um, and he goes on to find Elaine May, who is a bumbling rich uh, botanist and together we watch their courtship while he still plans and his machinations are moving into effect and they uh, kind of realize slowly that they kind of complete each other in a way that uh, they didn't know that they were missing in their lives which is kind of sweet and uh, but it's also very dark in terms of its uh, comedy so uh, yeah I I I enjoyed this movie. Uh, it kind of took me a little. It took me a little bit to get into the tone. Um, I don't know what I was expecting, but uh, I guess I wasn't expecting that type of uh, the tone that it sets out right away with. Um, and the characters aren't very likable, especially no. <laughs> Walter Matthau's character. Um, so it you know it takes you a while to kind of get into it. Um, so right away, I can see why this movie ended up being three hours long in her cut, because it probably took you a while to get invested in the characters and for the things to happen, for the turn to happen uh, later down the line in the film. So, um, but we're now the new, you know, the the one that the studio tinkered with ends up just being like an hour forty-five, um, and all this stuff is G-rated old time old timey yeah. uh old timey rating system you know there's no sex and violence therefore it's g even though the the subject matter and the uh the ideas behind the movie are very adult so uh yeah i i enjoyed it i thought the uh i thought you know it was hard to like the characters but uh i never thought that you know, Walter Matthau was very hard to like, but as you start to, as he starts to try to uh, win her affection, you could see uh, some of the things that could be uh, redeemable or likable about him come out. Like when he kind of stands up to some of the more polite society and really kind of puts them in their place uh, in her defense. I enjoyed stuff like that. Um, and I enjoyed kind of like. Uh, just how helpless and useless he is and to watch him have to grovel and change his lifestyle and then kind of uh, turn it around again uh, was fun and then I loved Elaine May's character as much as she 
maybe in the 70s comes off as annoying. She's just very sweet and very just intellectually wrapped up in herself so what may be seem fumbling or or just kind of uh outside the norm of that time is just basically because uh there's a level of she doesn't care about that type of stuff which you know if you're in a uh, a rich high society and you don't care about the social graces that exist in that society those rules that set you apart from everyone else then of course you're gonna be considered lesser than and so uh i don't think she really cared about that which uh which also made it fun um matt what'd you think i love this movie i think it's so funny and so smart uh and there's lots of different ways that you can enjoy it um i think the black comedy of it uh is very entertaining have have you seen kind hearts and coronets the film yes she um, was influenced by it. That's a great. That's one of my favorite movies, and I think she hit the tone of the main character here just right for that. For with that film, in the sense that um, there's a certain Walter Matthau's character here has a certain um, set of moral values that are obviously uh, terrible, but he <laughs> sticks so well to those moral values and his belief system and he doesn't for a moment think that what he's doing is wrong or that other people even that other people would see it as wrong you know there's this this real droll way in kind hearts and coronets which is um which is uh voiceover has voiceover in first person talking to the um uh the audience um that that the that the odd there's an assumption from the character that the audience is on his side all the time and i think that's really true here of walter Matthau's character where he even though he never breaks the fourth wall and he's not it's not a knowing performance in any way um he is operating from a position that to him is totally logical and no other options that could be considered are uh in any way reasonable like even just the the notion of what you just said like that he has two choices to either kill himself or marry like there's pretty i'm pretty sure there's another choice which is just to be kind of not that rich (laughs) yeah you have sell some stuff you have half a million dollars worth of stuff (laughs) in the 1970s like you can sell all that stuff and be okay uh for quite a long time for the rest of your life basically but that is not a legitimate option uh for this guy um but the, the the thing the way that i think this movie becomes exceptional um is uh through uh two things first of all the dialogue and the the sophistication of the jokes is just impeccable um there's so many great like just even throwaway lines are so it's so funny um the he's at the tea party and he's introduced to the hitler and he says are you in any relation to and you're expecting the next like adolf and he goes the boston Boston hitlers Hitlers. amazing (laughs) 
Um, oh, it was great. The only, the only, that was like so amazing. The the line that beat it by a slight margin for me was the crooked lawyer uh, trying to come up with a plan, and he says, "Who do I know who's pregnant and a good sport?" Yes. <laughs> Well, it was a it was the Hitler family line that finally pulled me fully into the film. Yeah, like once yeah. that line was said, I'm like, oh my god, this movie is working on way way more comedic levels than I'm giving it credit for. And then I really fully became committed to watching it. But uh, yeah, oh my god, that pregnant and a good sport. There's so many like almost all the characters in this movie. Uh, I think probably the valet is the only person yeah. who isn't just completely morally corrupt <laughs> and out to just ruin everyone else for their own gain. Uh, that and Elaine May's character, uh, Henrietta, which is also great. Henry and Henrietta. Yeah, yeah. Well, and she just, like, she... Um, I mean, and this gets into the second way in which I think this movie becomes exceptional, which is... That it, it reminds me a lot of the Czech New Wave, and in particular, the films uh, like um, uh, The Ear and um, um, Invitation uh, Party. I forget the name of the movie. Um, it went right out of my head. But uh, the the uh, it's like a party without guests. Uh, oh, okay, yeah. I forget the name of it. Um, but basically the movies in that in the Czech New Wave that were directly parroting um, the sort of communist party uh, upper tier um, and uh, looking at them through a skewed lens I, I see this movie very much as the American capitalism counterpart to those films mm-hmm. um, and it it's a rare thing um, that happened in that era of um, American cinema because some of that was being done in the 80s uh, but not uh, you know especially like you look at like the Richard Pryor films um, and or even like uh, Trading Places or something like that yeah. but the, this, this movie came much earlier than those and the way the first half of this movie works and just his um, his just complete uh, like l- lack of any pleasure in his life um, as he wanders through you know uh, riding horses and going on airplanes and you know all he can think about is his Ferrari that breaks constantly um, and he's not even listening to anything anyone says he doesn't want to talk to his lawyer even though there's an emergency it's just it's all very like um uh it's all very funny in the way of of like really looking at what wealth in america means and like wh- how this guy was valuing his life before it was taken away from him like it, and then the the scene of him going through to all the places that he used to go and just saying goodbye oh. to them is and whispering whispering so funny I'm poor. <laughs> I'm poor. Oh my god, it's great. And she totally skewers that whole type of uh, male-dominated upper-class uh, lifestyle. Because like it's like you said, you know, it's we- there's no there's no uh, physical visual joy that he is receiving from living this uh, rich and wealthy lifestyle. 
Like there's nothing on his face that uh, that conveys to the audience that he's uh, this is the life, right. this is good, because the lens that we're looking at, which is through Elaine May's eyes, uh, it's you know it's it's satirizing that whole entire uh, what wealth and affluence brings you. You know the simple fact that he'd prefer to drive a broken car that looks like it's the best thing in the world to mm. make sure every rub it in everyone's face versus having a car that works is a perfect example of kind of like <laughs> his whole way of being and uh you know says a lot about his character moving on throughout the rest of the film yeah and even like he you know is is uh horrified that she it was t- had taken the bus there um, and then his car breaks down and they have to like get towed <laughs> but, and it's not even they get into a the tow truck they're just towed in his car yeah yeah two places where he needs to go and the yeah the when, carbon when, on the valves like uh, recurring joke is so perfectly done as well it's just so funny it's, it's so good and yeah I, I i really enjoy when he uh you know when he's told by when he finally meets his lawyer after a check bounces he goes to you know goes to see what the deal is why isn't this bill being paid which is his uh, club membership where he probably stays quite often spends most of his time and uh you know the guy's like well you have no money <laughs> and he Walter Matthau just is insistent upon yes yes but i need this bill to be paid yeah but you're out of money I need this bill to be paid. <laughs> and it's just, it keeps going. And you just see him, the lawyer, struggling with it. He's so like, funny, too. Oh, it's so He's like, good. let's see, how do I put this? Um, how, what's a different way of saying that you don't have money? Uh, you, you are out of money. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's so well done. And it's, uh, you know, it is, and you can see here. Um, if you go back and listen to her comedy albums with uh, with Nichols, uh, it, this this type of humor is the skewering of this uh, wealthy upper class white man, kind of like they're in their whole, uh, you know, what they're going through and what their problems are as opposed to everyone else's. This is what they were kind of yeah. like really working at. And uh, we should, I guess we should, we failed to mention, but we should, is this, uh, besides Kinehorts and Coronets, which you drew a lot of influence from, this is also based off of a short story by Jack Ritchie um, called The Green Heart. And uh, it stays pretty very faithful to, um, it stays very faithful to the, sh- to the short story. Um, uh, if you buy the Olive Signature edition of this film, which is the only Blu-ray version you can find of this film uh, in uh, Region A, um, it inclu- is included in the uh, in the book uh, that comes with the film, the, sh- the original short story. So I read it, and it's uh, yeah, it's very it's very ac- it stays very consistent to uh, the way her film is told, and probably the way her original three-hour film was told, because as we move through, we can see that. Uh, large chunks of it were taken out um which is uh some of the more uh dark and disturbing subject matter which is uh some of the murders that happens but in this film uh there are no murders there's only uh, the thought of it uh that occurs and uh a wish fulfillment and a fantasy sequence in which he imagines these things happening but uh yeah i love the bear um in the uh in the adirondack fantasy sequence oh god that was so good that's so good and that's such a uh that's such a uh 
it's such a modern it's a it's a modern storytelling trope now in comedies like mm-hmm. family guy or uh yeah or even wes anderson would use those types of uh total like staged faked uh really uh hyper stylized over dramatized <coughs> like little cutaways to you know show I'm, i think a lot about the stuff that happens in moonrise kingdom uh with those types of like cut to the boy scouts in trouble and then cut back you know kind of things and uh yeah, and yeah. there's a lot of that in Annie Hall as well, um, which is another film that had um, huge uh, chunks taken out of it and massively re-edited in post. Um, and I see that a lot was... of Woody Allen in this movie. Yeah, I can. I, you can see why he he has uh, stuck with her throughout all these years. Uh, they were friends back in the comedy days, and uh, she wrote. Uh, part of Small Time Crooks and some and probably script doctored some of his other ones with him, um, but uh, yeah, and Annie Hall was that that was seventy six, right? Seventy seven. Yeah, these were uh, th- this was this predates pretty much all of his directed movies. Um, he did take the Money and Run before this, but um, the certainly the the films of his that I think owe the most to May um, his late seventies um, films in particular. Um, we're, we're all after this and I think that it's pretty clear that, that he was uh, a fan of this movie yeah no for sure you can see a lot of that uh, that uh, type of humor and that type of setup and delivery coming through yeah. in a lot of in a lot of the 70s comedies later like even, even as you, you go a little further down the line this uh, intellectual 70s comedies that skewer some specific thing usually about romance or relationships um, a lot of that has the tone that she sets in this film uh, running throughout a lot of them. Yeah, there's um, also a European sensibility here too, though. I mean, and that, that obviously rubbed off on Woody Allen as well. Um, the uh, the idea that, like, the, the almost like the grotesquerie of the cinematography, um, you know, I mean, that one amazing shot of his uncle's face oh, sort of well, almost practically stuffed. eating um, yeah. Walter Matthau's head. Uh, to to a certain degree, well, and, I, and I think that ties into your uh, what you were talking earlier about the uh, Czech, yeah, uh, the yeah. Czech New Wave. There's a lot of that feeling that sense, you know, like you know, talking about the political parties and the communism, and she's just turning it into that social commentary about a class division, and yeah, because he's grotesque, and you know, just when you think Walter Matthau is the kind of like the most grotesque person you can kind of be with, as you watch him just be crude and rude and and not very nice and uh, above it all he probably wouldn't stop to help someone in the street for fear he would get dirty then you meet his uncle who's even worse than him and uh they make a little bet uh the only way walter Matthau could probably uh get out of this his henry character is to uh take out a loan from his uncle uh an uncle who hates him who's mad that you know who kind of half raised him and uh and so they, he bets him that he'll give him all his assets, all his wealth, um, if he doesn't pay him back fifty thousand dollars in uh, was it six weeks? Yeah, it's it, it, yeah, I think it's six weeks. Yeah, yeah, something like that. And so he uses that capital to go out and uh, start trying to score himself a, a wife. Which his courting process scenes are absolutely hilarious with some of the other women that he, uh, <laughs> the one he follows around at the. Uh, at the kind of like club where everyone's in bathing suits, but he's in a full suit still yes. hanging out at the pool. And uh, there's a lot of, there's another part of this that uh, 
uh, it isn't until he turns over that, you know, he, he uh, fully commits to the idea of Henrietta. Um, he's, he's almost coded as maybe gay. Uh, some of the lifestyle choices he's leading. and like, Yeah, I was wondering know, that too. Like, but, uh, you know, it could be more of a, a dandy or a fop because of uh, that 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 lock of hair that keeps on hanging in front of his uh, face. It ju- it's such a great touch that he uh, you know chose to have that always there. This uh, this curl of hair that is in his forehead all- always. Yeah, he strikes me as more of just like he is just so self absorbed and um, uninterested in anything except just like luxury that. Uh, sex never even occurred to him. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> I think, I think, like, a, like a, the first time I'm watching it, and the way the butler's talking to it, like, you can kill yourself or find a woman. It almost was kind of like at first I was like, you know, uh, coded for like find a beard that will uh, mm-hmm. give you money, and you could kind of continue your lifestyle choices. Right, because he says marriage. You mean to a woman? To a woman? Yeah. And so that was my like, whoa. Uh, that's kind of this will be interesting if it moves that way, but you know it is. It is exactly what you're saying. He's so self-absorbed that he can't see himself with anyone uh, because uh, that would just completely change the his lifestyle that he leads, which is uh, is so uh, <laughs> so selfish. Yeah, um, that 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 moment also has one of my uh, other favorite lines in this movie, which is where he, he uh, Harold says that he'll be poor, and uh, he says uh, Henry says poor. And he says, poor in the only real sense of the word in that you will not be rich. <laughs> I love it when he says to him, what would you say if I told you that I'm broke? Well, I would say I would like a letter of recommendation and yeah, give I'd you give my two, two weeks, weeks notice. notice. <laughs> <With> proper. <laughs> That's good. And then uh, I guess we should talk about Elaine May and her character because she put she brings a, a stellar performance her comedic timing and her uh, physical comedy uh, is 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 hilarious. Uh, the first time he meets her, they're at a tea party, and she is balancing this cup of tea, and <laughs> just due to lack of interest on her own part, yeah, uh, she spills the right. tea. Right, it's not like she's trying to put it down or anything, and no. she misses the table. Like, she literally is just sitting there, and she just the, slowly the teacup is tilting over. <laughs> <laughs> Because she's looking somewhere else. I mean, and her like the the idea. I think it's like uh, that. Her her the reason she's wealthy is because her father was either a doctor or a composer or something like that. Yeah, they, they're like he was either like you know he was one of those like like doctors or composers or something. <laughs> like, yeah, the unsubtle way that Matha was asking about her wealth yeah. to the uh, other characters. Uh, well, and just quite and just uh, the very idea that she's. Um, that she like she's kind of uh, like um, kicked out of high society, both because she's weird, but also because she chooses to work. Like she's she enjoys she. There's no reason for her to work, but she enjoys working. And you get this sense from these other people of like, why would you want to work? Who who likes working? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a, it's an oddity to them. So yeah, she's totally like uh, ostracized and you can see she spills her tea a big fuss is made uh they pour her a new cup even though she doesn't want one (laughs) 
And then uh, Walter Matthau crashes into her in what will forever be uh, meet cutes from now until the end of time of all romantic comedies, the uh, crash into one another kind of deal. Yeah. Uh, she spills a second cup of tea. The lady yells at her, and uh, Matt, that's when Matthau throws out that great line about her being so sexually attracted to her rug that it's never seen something more depraved or 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 uh, depraved or oh, what's the yeah, line? Yeah, it was grotesque. Boring. Yeah, Gro- probably the most grotesque and certainly the most boring. <laughs> and then dumps his tea and takes off with her in a big grand gesture. Yeah, oh, that's so good. <laughs> the dialogue in this movie is just razor sharp it's so funny um yeah it's uh, but but i but i i am even in that scene you know the way that she's shot and um the other characters are shot it's it's very um again like it it, it's it there's so much humor in the way that this movie is filmed as well that it, it becomes a really interesting um movie and 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 the fact that like she, you know, has talked about like she never had been on a set before. She didn't plan on directing this movie, um, and uh, and then you think about the fact that she didn't edit it. That like this is footage that was taken from her and somebody else put it together. It's really impressive how tightly constructed this movie is, considering that it's like not really the movie that necessarily anybody involved intended to make. Um, but it doesn't come off that way at all. No, not at all. Because yeah, like you're saying, uh, the the cinematography in it is fantastic. They have those. Uh, just when we first meet her, uh, you know, she is tiny in that yes, frame yeah. and off to the side, away from everyone else, and she stays there. And her face is obscured. You barely see her face until uh, like their first date. Everything is so uh, covered and uh, hard to see. And uh, and she's uh, completely blown away or, and smitten with the idea that someone has any interest in her whatsoever. Um, because I don't think she also, just as much as, uh, as, much as Walter Matthau could not picture himself ever being married, um, I don't think she could ever picture herself being married either because she's never probably been treated um, in that way by anyone due to... Uh, the way she is and the way she's perceived and her interests so oh yeah well and she obviously has no idea how to communicate with with anybody like he gives her that canned line of like your work your hopes your dreams and she just goes right down the list (laughs) she's like i love that (laughs) my work oh yeah my my dream well i guess i don't know can you call dreams and hopes it's kind of the same thing right but i guess yeah, I guess those are my work, my hope, my dreams. <laughs> and then later they revisit it with her. Uh, oh my! Remember that night? My yeah. dreams. My dreams was that you would want to be with me, kind of thing. And it was so sweet. Like that's the thing. Like they've set up so many parts of this movie to be so dark and so just like rotten in terms of how these pe- how this person is perceived. And then these little shining moments of like sweetness on Elaine May's part comes through, and they're just really touching and poignant, and I really like them. And like, yeah. And uh, one of the things that you know that that conversation they're having in the car together, um, you know, they're talking about their hopes and stuff, and she talks about how she just wants to discover a new species of fern, which I think is just it could have been any plant in the world, but they pick fern. Because it is the most plain, dull, common plant of all, but there's something there's a unique one out there, 
and I find that like the 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 relationship between that and Elaine May's character Henrietta, uh, I th- I found that to be a beautiful little symbol for what she is and what she can become if someone went looking for her, which I found to be really beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I guess I w- the thing I would ask you is is like, does this movie work for you as a romantic comedy? As a do you? A, I guess A, do you buy into his uh, transformation uh, at the end? But B, more importantly, does it read as a truly happy ending? Did did she change him? Did these two people who were sort of destined to be alone through uh, no fault of their own, or certainly through no fault of Walter Matthau, um, actually find each other and uh they'll be happy forever after i don't know if they'll be happy forever after but she does change him because he becomes he commits like during that last section where they 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 finally get married against everyone's better wishes no one uh, especially her lawyer who's been uh, using her all of her staff at the at the uh, at her house all at her estate have been using them in a way that uh, bilks her of all of her money and he he's been wanting after her money the whole time too he's proposed to her many a times but um, he, after they've been married and they go off on this adventure together because uh, every year she goes on a uh, exploratory journey to kind of uh, classify and look at new plants and stuff like that and when Walter Matthau's character goes with her on this trip um, you see throughout the progression of the trip him changing in terms of caring about things about her so you know he he wants to show her how to do this and he kind of takes over this he cooks her a meal because she can't do it he fixes her coffee because it's you know she spills it all over herself like he he makes efforts to take care of her and for someone who is spending most of his most of the movie plotting her demise for him to start wanting to take care of her uh, showcases some sort of connection or awakening in him that makes him want to care for this person and at the end of the film when they plunge over the waterfalls and she says I can't swim and he's and he kind of says oh we'll let go and I'll catch you and doesn't and just kind of sits there for a second coming up with the story to tell the police um, and then he sees the same fern that she discovered that she named after him and he takes that effort to say you know like this person has done something that has made me greater than what I was before and makes that effort to go and fetch her from the water and save her as much as it, you know, they could get never meet again after that time, but she has profoundly changed him away from the selfish person he was before. Cause he is committing small acts of selflessness to help her. Um, even if some of it is, uh, is uh, selfish in terms yeah. of, well, that's kind of, the, I mean, I think it, it's hard because, well, first of all, like, he uh, he finally thinks of her as worthy of his time, or uh, you know, of or worthy of not being murdered. 
uh, when she grants him immortality. <laughs> yeah, um, no, yeah. <clears throat> but I mean, I think, and the and 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 I think the the things that you point out are definitely um, there. But it, again, it, it feels a little bit like uh, he's he's enjoying these things because of what they are doing to him. Like he he's he's realizing something about himself through this process. Um, as opposed to falling in love with her. Like the fact that he is uh, putting her financial affairs in order and um, in the longer version of this movie, uh, stopping blackmailers from punishing mm-hmm. her, um, apparently. Um, and then in, the, in those final moments of like, he's sort of uh, like, he saves her not necessarily because he feels bad and like doesn't want her to die but because uh, like he's he's reminded of like how he makes she makes him feel about himself um but i i don't necessarily know that that's like a bad thing i mean i think it makes the the ending more complicated but it's still kind of a happy ending in the sense that like isn't that kind of what we all do in relationships? Like, we're well, yeah. That's the that's the thing about it. Yeah. It's like that's what a relationship is. As much as it is, is you loving or or, or uh, you know what you consider loving the person you're with. It's also how that person makes you feel. Yeah. And most relationships end because the two people don't make themselves feel good anymore. Yeah. Like that's how a relationship ends. And so even if, you know, it's, it's a really grotesque way of looking at it, but it's a truth and it's an ugly truth. You know, it's a relationships as much as they are about giving. It's a selfishness as well. You know, if that person that you're in love with is not making you feel good anymore, then you're going to leave them. And so it's that it's that weird it's that weird truth about relationships that uh that makes that ending so kind of like oh man like <laughs> like you really yeah, you put into question a lot of values while watching this film um and there's lots of those pieces because you know the fact that she could be immortal and named uh, so on their honeymoon she discovered for those who haven't seen the film which i would really hope you would watch this film before listening to a whole podcast <laughs> about it uh please do i guess we should start we will say yeah i mean we will someday do no spoiler episodes of certain movies that are hard to get a hold of but yeah this movie's out there yeah please, please watch go watch it, it. yeah <laughs> um but uh you know the fact that uh when she discovers this new species of fern and decides to name it after uh, Henry Graham's character, Walter Matthau's character, Henry Graham. Um, Grahammy. Grahammy. <laughs> the uh, Fernicus Grahammy. Um, you know, the fact that she decides to do that speaks about her, which she is very giving and she is very naive, as we've noticed because of all the people taking advantage of her in life. So Mathau comes in and he sees all these people taking advantage right. of her. And selfishly, he wants to get rid of them because that means more money for himself. But at the same time, he dispenses of these people with panache and enjoyment, which you know can also be kind of like protecting her a bit. You can read it that way if you want, because he could just walk in and say, you're all fired. And not make a deal of it, but he he revels in the firing of these people. His lines that he delivers, <laughs> you know, the the the, tor- the turmoil he puts them through is so enjoyable. 
and uh, you know he makes it very clear that he's he's relishing this act. But uh, and Doris Roberts is really funny in this. She's movie. so funny. The winking in this movie. when she first meets uh, Walter Matthau is hilarious. When he calls her out, uh, her pen, her uh, her uh, her stipend of eight hundred dollars, and she turns there and she goes, "No, four hundred dollars." There's so many great little pieces like that. The driver's too busy to be bothered to take her anywhere, so she always takes the bus. Yeah, uh, all, know, all of he's... the uh, the the whole like the the sort of kooky household helpers uh, thing. I I I've seen that in so many movies since, and I'm not sure that it ever was before. But it's done just so well here. It's so funny how they're just like random randomly about the house like the daughter and um you know the driver is having sex in the back room and it's just so funny it's great and then the fact that like and she doesn't uh like may as a director and as a writer doesn't take these female comedians and reduce them to types she lets them like almost develop their own kind of little characters and personalities for their their performance which is i i think is great you know you could see that that's that's part of uh her ability as a female director to be able to give voice to other female comedians in this film um that another maybe a male director might have just put them as types as you know there's no like you know there's no sexy bombshell uh, maids in yeah. the house or anything like that. Well, they're all matron. Well, there is one, but it's but 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 they're all but they're all matron. Like they're all given a little bit more than just being that thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and and they get their moment of um, interesting character uh, development, um, even if it's you know even if they're only in one scene. I mean, I, this movie could definitely walks a line of misogyny. Uh, obviously mm-hmm. just the basic premise of the movie like going out to find some loser woman uh, who's rich so that you can kill her and take her money uh, is sort of just inherently uh, problematic yeah. um, and so you know and there's certainly dire- uh, male directors that could have pulled that off um, but she definitely uh, gives uh, her character that she plays so much humanity um, and allows uh, each of the other female characters, even the ones that I mean, the 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 heiress, the Texan heiress uh, that he um, tries to woo early on. Um, she's uh, she's really funny, and that that character could easily be um, be a moment where we're laughing at her instead of mm-hmm. you know in the scene. Um, and yeah, uh, laughing at the situation, yeah, not at her yeah, as a character. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, it's 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 played off really well uh, in that regard. Uh, I read one interesting point. Somebody pointed out about Elaine May's character in this movie that she's kind of playing um, both Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn's roles in bringing up baby at the same time. <laughs> I think that's really a great observation because that is. she has that nerdy cluelessness that Cary Grant's character has, but she also is sort of spacey and, uh, naive. Adventurous. Yeah. Spirited. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she really hits all of, all of the right notes and, and, uh, and somehow like gels really nicely with, with Walter Matthau's deadpan. 
delivery. Um, I mean, I think most famously one scene that we haven't brought up yet is the um, is the Grecian nightgown uh, scene, which is uh, really funny. And oh my god, that is she, so good. Uh, she, she she apparently sewed herself into the the dr- the dress so that he could he was it was physically impossible for him to and get her out of it. About and it. didn't tell him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so he, all that frustration is real frustration as he can't, <coughs> can't make the scene work the way they practiced it. It's so funny because she's oh my god, the head so hole good. when he's like, you yeah. gotta take the you arm gotta... arm hole, put it in the head hole. <laughs> well, and that's part of that. Uh, you know, as much as that's like, that's part of that like weird development of caring about her. He does, and you know, like you. you the foreground of him like wanting to marry her for her wealth and do like you know I think he's reading a book about poisons oh, before the, he goes to help her. It's uh, introducing toxicology or introduction yeah, to toxicology. Introduction to toxicology, <laughs> and that shot is, is really great. great. Which is like, I mean, she's leaning over a cliff. Like he could easily just walk over and like untie oh. the rope, and she's and that's the end of that. But yeah. he's so like absorbed in his own like plot to get rid of yeah. her. He has all these missed opportunities because he's absorbed with how perfectly he wants yeah. to do it his way. Um, yeah, it's very it's it that's it's it's a fine balancing act she's walking on uh, between super dark, s- satirical, and like light and romantic. Like there are moments of that which you know if you dialed back the dark, you have a typical romantic comedy. If you up the dark, you would have a real independent kind of like independent film type uh you know com dark comedy and she right. walks a very fine line that kind of like uh easily blends into many of these uh uh you know typical things we see now that we can easily put into these boxes uh she rem- she doesn't allow this film to be put into a specific box which i think is great yeah i totally agree um and and i think it's interesting like how sympathetic her character is um and yet we're we're so uh doggedly focused on walter Matthau's character who is obviously so unlikable and morally bankrupt and also a little like empty as a person. Um, but we're, we so frequently see her character through his eyes, um, Mm -hmm. and sort of just like the, like, Oh God, like, is she, uh, she's going to do that now. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Her (laughs) lips, her lips stained with, uh, the cheap wine she likes to drink. Or even just like the, just the subtlety of the moment when they pull the table out and she gets up and she's got crumbs all over her lap. Like, <laughs> but, he, but then he like, it's part of that, like, Oh, I'm embarrassed to be with her. So I should clean her up. But there's also that taking care of like she, I mean, as much as that is that you don't want that to be the trope of the man taking care of the woman. But you know, this movie came, you know, this movie was right on the, right on the out of the second wave feminism it was right on the cusp and in the middle of that movement and so you know this could easily be portrayed as you know uh, setting that movement back but at the same time she's the one with a career she's the one with a job she's the one who has agency she's the one who has all these things going for her she's the one that has goals and aspirations in life and he's the one who has nothing 
Yeah. And it is only through being with her that he almost takes on <laughs> the feminine role of the person caring for the person who is too busy and wrapped up in work right. to care about the other things. Well, it's also interesting, too. Like, she never um, she never seems stupid in the movie that she, no. like, falls for his ruse. Uh, maybe in the one... The only scene where it comes close is where the lawyer lays it all out and explains what's ha- what is actually happening um and uh and Matthew is able to talk her out of it and convince her <laughs> that what he was going to do was kill himself but then he he felt found her and fell in love um and she buys into it immediately but even there like it never like even when she's like oh like I'm I, I'm going to make sure that he doesn't really want my money because I'm just going to give him all my money. And then, and then he's, yep. he's still going to be with me. Uh, and that'll prove it. Um, like, well, and that's, a, and that's like a character trait of hers. Yeah. She believes the best in people. Well, and ultimately like, like it's not that different from, um, math out the beginning of the movie where he has no con- concept of not having money, uh, and mm-hmm. can't understand like paying a bill. These people are so wealthy and have never had to think about money, and so it it just doesn't even factor into their logical processes. Yeah, she's been being built of like what is it, eighty grand a year forever, and she doesn't like it doesn't affect her. Yeah, like that amount of money that the lawyer is uh, is uh, skimming off the top through all the employees that he hires to staff the house, you know, and it doesn't it doesn't it's not even something of any concern to her, and so yeah, it's an it's an interest it's an interesting. Uh, it continues that uh that concept of just you know not knowing the value of the money that you have and should the both of them you know don't at all and then yeah oh man there's so many great like that's the great thing about there's so many layers and so many pieces i really wish in some form her three-hour version yeah. existed um, I'm sure if it did, this edition would have included it somehow because they're pretty thorough with this packaging, with the kind of essay they provide, with the special features they have. So I'm sure if it did, it would. But uh, well, they're, they're I mean they're they're completely beholden to Paramount mm-hmm. um, in terms of what materials are handed over to them. I would wager to 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 say that the movie is probably gone forever but i guess mm-hmm. the idea is that you know there could always be some reels stuffed in a vault somewhere um filed away that people just haven't had the spent spent the time to uh to look for them for yeah i mean uh, the the other interesting thing is that the script has also never been released um and i have to think there's a copy of the script somewhere um yeah so you know who knows and uh, i I, you know again it it doesn't seem like she is somebody who is really interested in reliving her past uh experiences and so um you know perhaps if she had more motivation to track it down uh there might be uh something out there but it seems at this point unlikely that uh anything will turn up do do you think that um, I mean, I, I think we both agree that, uh, the fact that she wanted the movie to be one way makes that way the more valuable of the two. Um, I, I'm a big believer in that. Yeah. I mean, 
But do you think in this case, do you think that um, the movie, do you think that the movie is hurt by it? I don't know. Like, that's the thing. Like, without the comparison, I guess it it, it would be a completely different thing. I mean, the idea, like, if you, you know, if you read the short story, the things that are jettisoned, which probably would be about an hour at the pace that she is, uh, has deliberately set up throughout the film. I mean, I don't know if that's the studio's pace that has been set up, but the pace of the film, probably what would be missing is about an hour's worth of material in which. Uh, there's a blackmailer involved, right. and so Walter Matthau ends up killing the blackmailer to stop him from being a part of this. And then the lawyer figures out that Matthau killed the blackmailer because the lawyer was having the blackmailer pay him off as well. Um, so he Matthau ends up having to kill the lawyer to just remove all his obstacles so he could finally uh, you know, dispense with Elaine May's character. And then, you know, realizing that the better way to do it would be to let her perish out in the woods when they go on a trip to the Adirondacks. I can easily see that just being a straight-up hour. And for what they, what the studio has done, I don't think they've trimmed too much of what she originally did. I think they, it feels like they just excised that whole center structure and turned the some of the footage they she shot in that area into a fantasy right. sequence that he like you know a dream sequence that he you know went to got poisoned from one of the bot the guys that he met at his club and like there's that whole section that I think uh, you know in it works like as a film as it is right now I enjoyed it thoroughly it worked I liked it a lot um, but you know you can't make those calls without that that information. You know, when we when we watch Spartacus and the uh, Kubrick uh, uh, completions uh, series, uh, we were able to watch the footage restored into it that were excised out of the film, and you get a fuller, more rounder appreciation of the movie. Um, and I think it, I would love, you know, as usual, I would love to watch the entirety of this film in her vision um, because it's important. Because as you know, we're the chronologists; we like going in order. And to be able to really get a full appreciation of uh, her as a filmmaker, I would love to have seen what she intended to do her first time out and what it what it would have become to be able to see, like, you know, later in her other works, uh, you know, which she also had troubles with and problems with studios wrestling right. stuff away. Um, I would love to have seen kind of like... Her, her style from the get-go first before it was tampered with and before she started to lose faith in the whole system altogether. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing I keep wondering is just, like, I don't know that I can think of a movie that is of the similar style and tone that is that long. Yeah, I, like, that's the other thing. I can, to- like... After watching this film, you can see why the studio would want to take some some scissors to it. I just think they went about it the wrong way. Oh yeah, sure. They pro- they probably could have worked with her and and got and got the film down, or you know, I'm sure other directors. But at the same time, you've got directors in this time that are also doing final cuts and arguing with the studios and being yeah, uh, you know, brats about things and getting their way. And they kind of worked with those male directors, but with her, they treated her like a petulant child and just took her toys away 
and said, you can't play with this anymore. Yeah. Which, you know, is ridiculous. Um, it's a, it's a tor- tor- totally horrible way to go about going, uh, going about that process, especially when we're talking about art and creativity and creation. Uh, you know, you want constructive criticism and help shaping this item, not to just take it away and shape it in the thing you want it to be, um, which is part of the problem with, you know, just the dynamic of studio system anyway, you know the finance and art side kind of like not ever working together as well as it should at that point. Yeah. And I mean, the, the next year, uh, Robert Evans and Paramount released the Godfather, which is, was three and a half hours long, uh, obviously a completely different kind of movie. And I think family epics are more likely to be, um, received, uh, positively yeah. at, at that length, but it's not like they were, um, not uh open to putting out longer movies like that um but not not comedies right and not romantic comedies uh you know when you put out an when you you know three hours plus signifies usually that it's either a generational epic or it's a uh it's a story of such uh gargantuan size that it can only be told right you know it's fullness and so this idea of a small romance, like a small dark comedy, um, is <laughs> you know it's an interesting thing to uh, think about that idea as a three-hour version of it. Uh, but I guess we'll see later because she does uh, she does clock uh, Ishtar into quite a uh, lengthy uh, lengthy cut. So maybe we'll have a better idea of kind of. Uh, you know what a long comedy is going to be like yes although there yeah well we'll when we get to that there's there's a a long storied history of editing on that movie as well there were there were dueling cuts um frequently throughout it um and she she didn't really have um a good uh post-production experience on uh on uh any of her movies i think maybe um heartbreak kid was a little bit more more bearable but that was mostly yeah. because they insisted that she stick to neil simon's script as faithfully yep. as, as possible yeah um, and then mikey and nikki was also taken away from her yeah and and I, I mean i guess you know to your point about romantic comedies there is uh something here you know i i think comparing this movie to um her former partners, uh, the graduate, um, this is a much funnier movie than the graduate, but it's also, um, more in terms of, of what it's saying. I think it's just as, um, interesting and, uh, grappling with, uh, issues that are just as large as the graduate, but it does it in a much more, uh, subtle manner than the graduate. And so the graduate, I think, was able to uh, walk the line of being a comedy, but an important comedy in quotes uh, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, whereas this, I think, for a typical viewer going in, they would they would take this movie as a uh, romantic comedy, sort of on face value, and and dismiss it in that way. Um, and part of that po- probably was that. May was the director, but I think also the this particular genre and the fact that she chose to make a movie that was um, so uh, 
kind of irreverent. Uh, it's hard for people to take those kinds of films seriously. Um, they don't look at them as important movies to be uh, dissected like we're no, uh, attempting I mean, to do right now. I mean, and I think I think that's pro- one of the problems with the comedy genre in general because it makes you laugh. It's not as valued as something that makes you cry or something that makes you think, but all comedy makes you think in some yeah. level. Um, that's the whole point of the court gesture was to point out all the things that polite society is not supposed to talk about to make you think about beyond uh, what you were doing. And so, and I think that's one of the things, uh, like comparing it to The Graduate, like you said, uh, I don't think, I think this movie would be considered just as important if it didn't get shelved away through controversy and uh, disreputation due to the fact that uh, you know, Elaine May became the uh, butt of a ton of jokes based on her Ishtar uh, film. Yeah, I think this movie just got dismissed, and like all of her other movies. I mean, we're about to our next film. We're going to talk about, uh, as we both know, it is almost it is so hard to find and get a hold of. Um, you still haven't got a hold of it because I'm holding on to it. Ha ha ha. But. Uh, it's uh, I think I think this movie is is more subtle. It's because its humor is uh, is working on more levels um, than uh, the Graduate. The Graduate is funny. I enjoy the Graduate a lot. There's yeah. lots of great moments in that movie, but it is very uh, forward in its messaging. And this movie is much more coded and allows you to pick all these little pieces apart. You know, we talked about four or five different things that this movie has uh, has uh, levels it's been working on, and the graduates working on one or two levels. This is like four or five levels, and it's uh, you know it's it's really well done for a first time filmmaker. If you know anyone else, you know if you go back and look at all the greats in their first film, this movie is head and shoulders above so many big name directors first films yeah um there's a clear vision there is a clear uh, sense of uh, excellent direction there is a uh, a confidence behind the character and the direction and the camera that um is really hard to find in a lot of first-time filmmakers and that's one of the things that just you know blew me away you know just it isn't just two people against a wall talking it isn't uh you know a, a filmed play it isn't any of those things there's some real experimentation going on here and a love of her characters and i heard that this movie did go well over it went over budget and went over its shooting schedule because she would spend her time talking and working things out and really kind of like developing these characters and what they were yeah. doing which uh it's it's great like i i it's a it's a shame that a, more people haven't seen this, and I really think more people should because this is on par with the graduate in terms of a uh, uh, kind of not counterculture but kind of a, a satirical take on what it is to be, you know, uh, white and rich in America. Yeah, I agree. Nice. That was great. I'm glad we. I'm glad we. I'm glad we decided to talk about Elaine May in this film. I'm really excited to move forward because I will tell you the truth. I have not seen any of Elaine May's movies in this series. Okay. This is fully fresh All to me. All new to you. 
and I purchased that new leaf because uh, it's part of that signature series from Olive and I when we talked about it and we and we mentioned her name as a as a topic point I was like I'm fully invested in trying to uh, discover this as a brand new thing for myself and so I'm super jazzed after uh, watching this uh, film to talk more about this person and to learn more about this person through her films. Yeah, I've been um, very pleasantly surprised by everything I read on this movie and um, some of the interviews that I read. Um, It's a fascinating story, and each one of these movies has an interesting production history as well. So um, it should be be a lot of fun. Thanks for uh, kicking it off with me here. Hey, no problem, man. And uh, as uh, as we did last time, we'll be uh, ranking these. Uh, <laughs> so a new leaf is uh, is my number one. Where would you slot this uh, this movie? I would slot it as number one as well. Wow, I think we're okay. uh, we're even on yeah. this, man. We see eye to eye so many times. Yeah, impressive. Uh, <laughs> all right, well, um, the next week uh, we will be doing the Heartbreak Kid, which I always call the Goodbye Girl. Uh, so that's going to be a lot of goodbye girl uh, errors on the next episode. Uh, they're Sorry, both Neil I'll, Simon, I'll, so I can I can't be that far off. Um, I'll call it. Uh, I'll I'll start calling it a uh, barefoot in the park. If that's <laughs> yeah. Well, and the other thing we'll we'll have to do is um, never speak of the um, Ben Stiller uh, remake of uh, this movie because uh, yeah, it's not pretty, and it actually is a big part of the reason why um, Heartbreak Kid is currently not available uh on home video the rights owners think that uh everybody wants to pay the big bucks for the original version of the heartbreak kid uh starring ben stiller they want to find out where it all started uh so uh they refuse to put this out because they want they want big money for it uh, so you're going to have to hand over your um, out of print DVD that you've been um, hoarding from the library to me. And, I uh, will uh, I will happily hand it over to you sometime this week. And then, I'll, be, I'll be watching it this weekend and I'll pass it over to you this week. Perfect. And then we can uh, we can continue on with our uh, Elaine made journey. Yep. And for now, I guess uh, for another week, we're complete. <laughs>